Everyone here again, good morning to all of our brothers and sisters, all of our folks who watch from various states around the country and around the world. We love you very much. We appreciate you. We are delighted and humbled by you joining us and thank you for saying hello to us. We do take your prayer requests seriously. We are thinking of you and praying for you all the while. And our sincere hope is that you folks will take this exposition of the Gospel of John and spread the good news in your sphere of influence in your part of the world. And to those good brothers who have already told us that you are doing that, we love you very much. God bless you and all of your efforts to spread the true gospel of Jesus in your countries and in your parts of the world. We're very humbled and grateful that you are joining us. This morning, of course, we continue with our exposition of the Gospel of John. I ask everyone who's been watching and listening for some time and everyone here to continue to pray for the exposition of this book. Uh, I could give you many examples. Something's happening out there in our country and the world at large through the proclamation of this book in particular. Every book of the Bible is important. We've had thousands of people joining us from around the world for numerous New Testament books that we've been studying. But something special is happening with the teaching of the Gospel of John. You shouldn't elevate one book of the Bible over or against another, but obviously the Gospel of John is a very special book in the Divine Library with a very, very powerful message that some folks here in this very room can attest and testify to. Today we continue one of the most important conversations ever recorded. John chapter 3. Would you stand please to join me in honoring the reading of the word of the Lord? Gospel of John chapter 3 today verses 9 to 13. I'm going to begin reading in verses 9 to 13 this Sunday, but when you are seated, I will go back and start from the beginning of the chapter so we can take what I like to say is a running leap into the text that we are going to study today. And hopefully when I read from the top of the chapter some of the wonderful things that we've discovered so far in our journey through this chapter will, will come to your mind. John 3 today, verses 9 to 13. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know. We bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. These are the words of the Lord, and thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Now, please stay with me. I know you are already shocked in that we are going to attempt to teach five verses this morning, which is a rarity in our expositional teaching of the Gospel of John. And I will remind you that there are some really capable expositional preachers and teachers out there who would already be taking me to task for going too fast through this book. I have a lot of material to cover this morning, so I ask you to stay with me, and I'm uh, ask you to be patient with me as I'm going to have to um, stay a little closer to my notes, hug my notes a little closer this morning than perhaps I do at times. Let me start from the top of the chapter. 
refresh your memory as we take up our part about midway through this conversation. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. You do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Or you could arguably translate from the original Greek into English, How can this happen? How can these things happen? How does this come about? So notice in this conversation thus far, Nicodemus keeps seem, uh, well, he keeps or seems to be asking much of the same type of question, doesn't he? How can this new birth take place? What, what are you talking about? Well, a human being can't enter into their mother's womb and be born a second time. Now can they? Well, how can this be? How can these things be? How, how can these things happen? It's basically the same type of question. Nicodemus must be in a very interesting emotional and mental state right now, wouldn't you say? At this point in the conversation, at this point in the lesson, a conversation, a debate that has become a very profound lesson, probably the most profound lesson this man will ever receive in his life, that many of us will receive in our lives. Frankly, he's probably somewhat overwhelmed and deeply shaken, I would say. For Jesus has in short order totally refuted the way that Nicodemus approaches religion. He has totally refuted the way that this man has approached or dealt with spiritual realities. One's relation to God, one's relation with God, one's entrance into the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus sputters out another response, or attempts to, to Jesus' teaching his revelation, really, of divine truth concerning what the true nature of human salvation is. A response in the form of another question, how can this be? How does this take place? How do these things happen? Now, one could interpret his question several different ways. How do we take this question? There's been a lot of thought about that over the past 2,000 years as well. There should be. We weren't there that night. We may know exactly what happened in that conversation one night by way of Jesus and Nicodemus in the future. Who's to say? But we, haven't, we didn't hear this man's tone of voice, his inflection. We didn't see his expression. We weren't there. We weren't privileged to see his gestures. How do we take his question? Well, many theologians view his response as just another incredulous, baffled question. Yes, that is possible. Others believe this question may be an admission of defeat. I came here for a debate. All right, upstart rabbi from Galilee, I admit, you've got me. You've got me on this one. You have me bewildered. You have me baffled. Elaborate this for me. What in the world are you talking about? I think I know what you're talking about, and it terrifies me. But you've won this debate for now. What is this all about? That's possible. That is possible. 
Others have offered that Nicodemus is making some sort of a move, a debate maneuver, some sort of a desperation maneuver to try to salvage this theological debate. And this move, of course, well, it falls rather flat to the ground, doesn't it? You see this man, never forget the prologue. He is before the very Word of God, the divine Word of God, God the Son who has become flesh, who is the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. You can't debate God. You can't win a theological debate with God. He who is the Word made flesh. Nicodemus is coming up against the ultimate spiritual realities that the Word made flesh is revealing. And Nicodemus would probably just do better to remain silent and learn. And that's precisely what's happening. This representative of the religious establishment, the religious elite, he is all but silenced by God's representative who is the Messiah, who is God Himself. Now let me give you a few pretty sobering realizations from this text that a lot of times when we go through John chapter 3, we just skim right over it to go to John 3.16. Folks, this chapter isn't all about John 3.16. It's about the entire chapter, the entire conversation, the entire discourse. And you can't lift 3.16 out of its context. Sobering realization here at this point in the conversation. And that sobering realization is that this leading member of the religious elite, he lacks some of the most basic knowledge of the way and method of salvation. The way to God. And what Jesus is speaking of here, as we discovered, is found in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, the primary passage, and there are other passages as well. And this man is a publicly recognized religious spiritual expert, as we would say. More on that in a moment. That's a tragedy. That's frightening. And the tragedy is, it's still frightening. The tragedy is, you will find very much the same and many so-called religious leaders and experts today in this country and about the world. That's the way it is with fallen, sinful humanity, then and now. Other theologians have supposed that perhaps Nicodemus, as shaken as he must be, he may very well know deep within or deep down, as we say, he may very well know deep within here and here that what this rabbi from Galilee is saying is the absolute truth. And he's finally being bald-faced confronted with it. That what Jesus is saying does come from the Old Testament prophecies. Yes, he may be coming to the realization that all of those old difficult passages were really about what Jesus is saying here. And he may be ready to admit this. He may really want to know more. He may really want to understand now. That is possible. Any combination of the aforementioned, they're all possible. But you see what Jesus has to do to Nicodemus and his religious presuppositions, if I may express it that way? Jesus has to dismantle this man. He has to take him apart right down to the ground in order to get through to him. For him to wake up. For the spiritual eyes and ears of his soul to be opened up so that he may possibly become a recipient of this new birth that the Old Testament promised and that Jesus is now teaching and has come to bring. And many of us have to be dismantled one way or the other, completely down to the ground, before we can receive the truth and appropriate the truth in our life and receive the new birth. You see, Nicodemus has to give some things up. He has to unlearn 
what he has erroneously practiced and pursued most all of his life. And many people are confronted with this when they hear the Gospel of John for the first time, or perhaps not the first time. Nicodemus has to admit that he, that they, the religious elite, they have all been wrong, they have all been terribly wrong. And they have actually been teaching others erroneous beliefs. Beliefs which are contrary and which frankly counter God's Word, what is said all along, and what, well, if what Jesus is saying here is true. And what Jesus is saying here is true. The absolute truth. From He who is the truth, the source of all truth. You see, Nicodemus is a man of man-made religion, as so many are today. His man-made religion that he has been steeped in all this time, over time, has rendered this man and those like him virtually immune to what some theologians call true spiritual apprehension or true spiritual understanding. That is a frightening thing as well. Let me repeat that. Many people who are participants in man-made religion have been steeped in it for so long over time that they have virtually been rendered immune to this true truth, as Francis Schaeffer would say. True spiritual apprehension and understanding. That is a terrifying thing. And we encounter very much the same today, of course. Here is one of the most important points that you will receive from the entire New Testament, from all of the Bible, and from the Gospels. It takes God the Almighty to open the eyes of sinful, flawed, fallen human beings. We will not come to the truth or receive or accept the truth on our own. God the Almighty has to open our eyes and ears, the eyes and ears, the windows to our soul, in order for us to receive truth and appropriate it and to receive this new birth that Jesus is teaching of. It does here in this instance with Nicodemus, and yes, with us. It takes the Son of God and the Spirit of God to open fallen humanity's spiritual eyes. That's one of the most important truths that you're ever going to hear, that you're ever going to come to grips with. Nicodemus is facing absolute truth at last. He's facing realities that he has never heard expressed, even though it was there in front of him in the Old Testament all along. Nicodemus is genuinely ignorant, and it's not an excusable ignorance, folks. He is genuinely ignorant of the most important of life's realities, and he desperately needs to know. We all desperately need to know. All of humanity desperately needs to know. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, and by the way, this is a pretty harsh rebuke. This is a stern thing that Jesus says. It is not an offhand remark in a conversational manner. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Another sobering and frightening rebuke here that we would do well to pay attention to. Well, it is so when one pauses to really think about this. You see, Jesus is placing blame, frankly and squarely, where it belongs. On the heads of the religious establishment, men such as Nicodemus, who are supposed to have known all along by their lifelong study of the scriptures. And they did not know. They did not teach. They did not recognize. But they instead replaced God reveals truth in the Old Testament with their own word. Disaster. Every time. Spiritual disaster. Every time. Whenever human beings ignore the true word of God and replace the words of God with their own. Disaster. Every time. Now I'm going to get a bit technical on you. Why? I don't mean to be tedious. I get technical with you in the original language because it's important to help all of you folks to understand with greater depth what's being said. We believe Jesus is using a formal title 
perhaps even a national title. You see, in the original Greek of the Gospel of John, the words Israel and the words teacher in Jesus' statement are both preceded by what we call the definite article in Greek grammar. What does that mean? It means this. It suggests that the teacher of Israel, as Jesus says, it suggests that this was something of a formal recognized title that was held by Nicodemus. This means Nicodemus, in other words, was a formally recognized quote-unquote master or expert. He is an established religious authority. He is the equivalent of what we might say today, Mr. Reverend, Dr. Professor, so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. That's who and what he is. And he did not understand these things. Inexcusable and frightening. Very frightening. You say, Jesus, let me say this. Um, let me give it to you by something of a paraphrase while remaining true to the original text. This is what Jesus is saying by way of paraphrase, if you'll forgive me. You, Nicodemus, you of all people, you, the titled, nationally recognized teacher of the Scriptures, you, one of the most prominent leaders of the favored Old Covenant people of God, Israel, the receivers of God's truth, do you mean to tell me that you are actually ignorant of these matters? And it is not an honest ignorance of God's truth. It is a willful, sinful, deliberate ignorance of what Jesus speaks of. It is an ignorance for which there is no excuse. No excuse in the first century A.D. and no excuse for those just like Nicodemus in the 21st century A.D. By this rebuke of Nicodemus, you also see what Jesus is doing? Now think. Think carefully. By way of this particular rebuke of Nicodemus, Jesus is saying something else. Jesus is making it abundantly clear that his teaching on this new birth from above by water and the Spirit, it is most certainly founded upon the teachings and promises and prophecies of the Old Testament God's Word, of which Nicodemus has had all of his life, of which he is supposed to be an expert, and this truth up to this point has not penetrated this man's mind. Such is the darkened understanding of sinful, flawed human beings, no matter what their title is. God Almighty must open our eyes. You see, Jesus, He who is the Word made flesh, He who is God in the flesh, He's all but stripping Nicodemus of His title. This is a defrocking ceremony of sorts. Jesus is telling this man to his face, frankly, that he is unfit to lead, as we would say. And I wondered this numerous times this week and was given various reminders. How many today hold for themselves coveted titles and positions that they do not deserve and of which they will have to answer for to he who is the Word made flesh? Thank God the true teacher has arrived. The true teacher, the true leader, the true guide, the true shepherd, the true teacher and proclaimer of divine truth has finally arrived, thank God, by divine plan. And He is God Almighty Himself in the flesh, Jesus, He who is the truth, the source of all truth, the embodiment of truth, the personification of all truth. You see, this man, Nicodemus, is the one who thought he was the nation's greatest religious teacher, or one of them, 
and he has become the student put in his place. The one who is coming to put Jesus in his place, oh yes, has been put in his place. He came to perhaps shame Jesus. He, Nicodemus, the religious elitist, is the one who has been shamed. As Edward Clink writes in his gospel, although this gospel will give us insights into Nicodemus' response, the silence now from Nicodemus is deafening, is it not? Nicodemus became the very proof of Jesus' point. He was not only defeated by Jesus' argument, he became the argument, end quote. But thank God, thank God, remember, look to the future. For Nicodemus, this does end well. This does end well. His eyes and ears of his soul are opened by Jesus, the Word made flesh, and the Spirit of God in what Jesus is teaching here. And perhaps not this very night, but in time, this man will submit to the absolute truth that he is receiving this night from he who is the absolute truth. And this man, this flawed, failed human being of a flawed, failed, man-made religious system, thank God Almighty, he will receive the new birth. And he will be born again from above by water and the Spirit. He will become one of our first Christian brothers in the age of the church, the Messianic age. Take heart, listener and reader. This ends well for this man. And we all have to be confronted with the truth, frankly, by Jesus and by the Spirit of God. We all have to be dismantled down to the ground in one way or another to get over ourselves and to get into He who is the truth and to genuinely receive this new birth. Verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. And so now the conversation, well, it's not much of a conversation anymore. It becomes discourse at this point. Discourse all on the part of Jesus. Nicodemus is brought to silence, and so Jesus just simply proceeds to teach and proclaim and reveal the truth. The truth for which this chapter remains one of the best loved and most quoted and memorable of all the Bible, of all the New Testament. Now, first of all, we're confronted with what? Again, we're confronted with Jesus' very meaningful preface to a statement. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you. So we should be paying particularly close attention because we now know what this famous preface means now, don't we? Amen, amen, I say to you, I am telling you an absolute indispensable, irrefutable proof, truth. I am speaking to you the very words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of the Old Testament. The words I am giving to you are the words of the Lord with absolute authority and truth. Therefore, listen to what I'm saying to you. That's what Jesus is saying. With this absolute solemn truth, the words of the Lord, I again say to you, Nicodemus, we speak, they we have been speaking all along that which we know and bear witness to that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, Jesus is confronting and countering here, first of all, probably that rather pompous we know of Nicodemus back in verse 2, when this conversation first began. Remember? This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, we know, we the religious establishment, we the religious elitists, we know that you, little man, well, you probably have come from God. We have to admit that because of what we've been watching you do this past week or so in the streets of Jerusalem. But it's very, so Jesus is probably countering that we. But it is really interesting that he uses the plural we here in this verse. What does he mean by this? 
I mean, it is interesting. It should be interesting to you that Jesus uses the plural we instead of the singular I. Why does he do that? He could very well have said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I speak that which I know and bear witness to that which I have seen. And you do not receive my witness. But he doesn't do that. He uses the plural we. Why is that? I think there is a very profound reason that sometimes is overlooked. First of all, some have suggested that Jesus is using Queen Victoria's royal we. You know, the old queen in her elder age, there's an old joke going around Britain, going around the world, you probably heard it, that when Her Majesty heard or encountered something that didn't particularly please her, she apparently would say, we are not amused. Using the royal we, of course, to accentuate her status and position as the monarch. Some have suggested Jesus is using the royal we. Well, he very well could, couldn't he? He is the royalty of the universe, the king of all kings and lord of all lords. But I don't think he's using Victoria's royal we. It's more profound than that. Some Bible commentators have suggested that Jesus is rather sardonically mimicking the we of Nicodemus. D.A. Carson mentions this in his commentary. It's as if Jesus might be saying uh, something like, um, um, Well, Nicodemus, we know a thing or two also we do. Well, that's possible. But um, I really don't think that's the correct way to understand what Jesus is saying here either. Others have suggested that when Jesus says we, he is referring to himself and his disciples. But I think we can certainly rule that out out of hand. You see, he hasn't been with his disciples very long. This conversation is taking place very early in Jesus' ministry. He probably hasn't taught the new birth to them yet. We have no evidence of that in the Gospels. And by the way, frankly, I believe if Jesus did teach the new birth to his disciples at this point in their association, well, they would be just as much in the dark as Nicodemus was. So I think we can rule that out. Still others have thought that the we, the plural we Jesus is using, Jesus may be referring to himself and the earlier witness and testimony of John the Baptist. Now, that is entirely possible. Jesus might be saying, you heard what John the Baptist in the wilderness said about me. He claimed that I was Messiah and that the Messianic age would begin and that all the prophecies about the Messiah from the Old Testament will begin to come to pass. And you, religious elitists, you didn't believe Him. You didn't listen to Him. And now the Messiah has arrived. I'm here, the one that He was speaking of. And now I'm speaking of ultimate realities from the Old Testament. And you don't believe me either. You haven't received or believed or paid any attention to the testimony of my cousin John or I, all of us, any of us. Well, that's possible. Still others suggest, I believe this is getting closer to the truth and it's a bit deeper. Still others suggest that when Jesus says we, He is not speaking of any other person than He Himself. He's using the plural we for a punch, for an emphasis. He is simply using the plural we to give additional force to His own testimony. We is a self-reference, not the royal we. In other words, that is to say this. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that only He, Jesus, can truly speak this way about these things. There is no other person than Jesus that can reveal what Jesus says and does. That can speak as Jesus does. Jesus is the very source of all true divine revelation. This is most certainly possible. I believe it's more impossible. It's highly likely that this is what Jesus means by using this plural we. But I agree with some theologians who wish to take this even further, who take this even deeper. Yes, Jesus is saying, I am the only one, Nicodemus, who can truly speak to you about these things. There is no other person than I myself who can reveal what I'm revealing to you. There is no other person that can speak to you as I do. Yes, he is saying that, but he's saying more. 
The we that Jesus uses should perhaps be understood as a Trinitarian we. Trinitarian we. That is deep, deep water, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus may very well be referring to the three persons of the Trinity. Jesus, God the Son Himself, God the Father, God the Spirit. Let me read it to you this way. It would be terribly awkward if we put all that into English, but this is what Jesus may be saying. I tell you with absolute solemn truth, we, Father, Son, and Spirit God, speak that which we, Father, Son, and Spirit God know, and bear witness to that which we, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit have seen, and you do not receive the Father, the Son's, the Spirit's witness. That's probably what Jesus is saying. Jesus is speaking in terms of the triune being of God and of course of Himself as God the Son. God is revealing His truth and His plan, Father, Son, and Spirit, bearing witness to fallen humanity. That's what Jesus is saying. And of course at this point, can you imagine how baffled and bewildered Nicodemus is? He certainly has no understanding of the triune being of God, the truth and nature of the Trinity at this point, but He will but he will. So Jesus is likely saying, we, the persons of the eternal Godhead, divine Father, Son, and Spirit, we have been witnessing and testifying of and to divinely revealed truth to humanity all this while, for centuries, all through history, up until this evening's conversation, and yet you do not receive our witness. Or you do not accept our testimony, as your English translation may say. Now what of this statement? Jesus is stating the simple fact of sinful human beings in rebellion against God's revealed truth that's been going on since the fall of humanity. And the you in this statement is plural, folks. He's moving from Nicodemus to others. He's not letting Nicodemus off the hook, but he's speaking of others as well. The you is plural. As in you, plural, do not receive our witness. That is, you all, all of you, do not receive or accept our witness. Now, who does Jesus mind be, mean by you all, all of you? Well, first of all, he means Nicodemus and his fellows of the religious establishment. None of you, Pharisees or Sadducees, none of you are now receiving our witness and our testimony that we have been giving you all along in the sacred scriptures for centuries. But I agree with those who believe that Jesus is also speaking ultimately of us. Each and every one of us. He's speaking of all of fallen humanity. You, you all. All sinful fallen human beings do not accept or receive our testimony. Jesus is giving an indictment. He's giving a condemnation of sinful humanity and rebelling against God and His revealed truth and plan. And of course, this is true to this very day and this very hour. Verse 12. If... If I told you earthly things or things that take place here on earth and you do not believe, how shall you believe me if I tell you heavenly things? Now that's an interesting thing to say as well, isn't it? It's a very intriguing statement, isn't it? So what does Jesus mean by this exactly? What does He mean by earthly things? What does He mean by heavenly things? Well, this may not be quite so easy for some folks to understand it at face value. But hopefully we'll come to an understanding of this. Short order. Notice Jesus changes from we to I. Have you ever wondered why he does, does that? He speaks of the we. He probably uses a Trinitarian we. And then he switches back to the personal I. And frankly, Jesus isn't contradicting himself in any way. If you examine it carefully, the we and the I are in many ways synonymous. 
But let me cut to the chase, as we say. Jesus changes from we to I, simply to bring back into focus again the specific conversation that he has been having with Nicodemus. Let me put it this way. I say to you, we the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, speak that which we, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, have bear witness, that which we have seen for all of these centuries, for all along in the sacred scriptures, and you do not receive the witness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But now, this evening, in this conversation with you personally, Nicodemus, if I, God the Son, the Word made flesh, if I right now this evening am talking to you about earthly things and you do not believe me, how will you believe me here and now if I begin to tell you of heavenly things? It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, what does Jesus mean by earthly things and heavenly things? Basically, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is this. And listen to me very closely. Because I sometimes think we, we make what Jesus is saying here in this verse a little too complicated. And it need not be that complicated. So let me take an explanation this large that I would give you on Tuesday night and give you this explanation on Sunday morning for the sake of time. What does he mean by earthly things? Heavenly things. It's very important that we know what he's talking about, obviously. This is what he means. The new birth from above by water and the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. The earthly things he's talking about is the new birth which takes place in a person's soul, which is a work and gift of God from above. But, here's the point. Where is a person when they are born again? Where is a person? Where are they when they receive this new birth? Think about it. That's right. They're here on earth. The new birth takes place in a person's soul in this life. While they are here on this earth, a person receives a new birth from above while they're here on earth in this life, in the here and now, as we would say. And so that's what Jesus means by earthly things. Earthly things that happen to people by God's power while they're here on earth. You receive the new birth from above while here on earth. Earthly things. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, if I have told you, if I have told you of things that take place in a person while here on earth and you do not believe or perceive or understand, then how shall you believe if I tell you of even more profound things, of even loftier spiritual things, of even higher, more transcendent spiritual things and realities? How can you understand even higher heavenly things about life with God in the kingdom of God if you don't even know how to get into the kingdom of God by receiving the new birth which takes place here on earth? You see, that's what he's saying. If Nicodemus... If he cannot take in and understand the new birth that happens on earth, so a person can see and enter the kingdom of God, then how could he possibly understand and believe Jesus if Jesus were to try to tell him of all of these higher, greater things, these realities of life with God in the final kingdom of God, what it is, where it is, what it is like, and so on and so on. Forgive our, me, our international viewers, for using a very old American country expression. 
Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you can't put the cart before the horse. First things first, teacher of Israel. If Nicodemus can't get the basics yet that were there all along in the Old Testament, then what point is there in moving on to higher heavenly things? That's what he's saying. Verse 13, our concluding verse for today, for this morning. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Now what in the world is that all about? That's a very interesting and mysterious thing to say, isn't it? At this point in the conversation, after the point that he's just made. It's a very intriguing verse as well. Some may consider it, yeah, it's a bit mysterious, a bit enigmatic, but it's not really, if you really think about it. What is Jesus doing by saying this? Jesus is offering an explanation. He's offering an explanation as to why He is authoritatively and uniquely qualified to know and to speak of the heavenly things that He mentions of here. Now pay no attention to that noise in the hallway. We're going to take care of that next week. Focus in. Somebody is using that poor person to distract you from the truth. Do not be distracted from the truth. And for our viewers, pardon the noise. I thought something like this might happen. Because frankly, what Jesus is going to say here in verse 13 is one of the most important things that you're going to hear in chapter 3. One of the most important things you're going to hear in the whole gospel. And sometimes we skim right over what he's really saying in verse 13. It is astounding what he says to this man. This man of the religious elite. Let me start over. First of all, he's offering an explanation as to why he is authoritatively and uniquely qualified as none other to know and speak of the heavenly things that he mentions here. The authority that belongs to Jesus that uniquely qualifies him to speak of and reveal heavenly things, it is an authority that originates in his own heavenly origins. That's what he's saying this early in his ministry in Jerusalem to one of the chief members of the religious elite, he will all but be blatantly stating his divine origins and deity to Nicodemus. Yes, folks, probably by this point in the conversation, if Nicodemus is really taking in what Jesus is saying to him, you would probably have been able to pick this man up off the ground or the floor. And the word and here in verse 13, which begins verse 13, it connects verse 13, of course, to verse 12. And it explains Jesus' unique authority to speak as He does, to say the things that He's saying. In order to truly and completely, genuinely know of heavenly things, Jesus is saying, one must either have gone to heaven and found out about these things and come back to talk about it, or one must have to have come from heaven itself. Somebody whose origins are in heaven would have had to have descended, come down to tell us about these things. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, to speak about the things that I'm teaching you, one must have first-hand knowledge. One must have experiential knowledge. That's what Jesus is saying. He states that no mere mortal human being has ever ascended to heaven and come back to tell of it. Or talk about it. No one has died and gone into heaven and seen what's really there and heard the deep counsels of God and have been able to come back and tell humanity all about it. That's what he's saying. Now, Enoch may have been translated. Elijah was taken, translated to heaven. We believe taken bodily to heaven to eternity without experiencing mortal death. But Elijah didn't really come back to talk about it, now did he? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, we do have some information, thank God, graciously given to humanity in God, God's revealed word, but no human being has ascended to heaven and learned all the details of God's plan of salvation for humanity and come back to talk about it. So the only other option is somebody whose origins are in heaven has to come from heaven, descend from heaven, and tell us all about it. Do you see where he's headed here? What he's really saying? The full detailed plan of God for and in human salvation, this knowledge, this information, must be given to humanity by someone who has actually come from heaven, Nicodemus. Someone whose origins are in heaven. Someone who has enjoyed all along the deep counsel of God and has been sent by God to give knowledge and understanding to humanity. You see what Jesus is implying, if not outright claiming or stating? He's the one. He is the one whose origins are in heaven. He knows. He has been there. He has seen. He has shared in the deep counsel of God all along. And He has been sent by, heaven, by, by God from heaven to earth to tell Nicodemus, to tell all of humanity of the full plan at last. Comprehensively, in detail. The full plan of God for human salvation and redemption. Jesus is saying His origins are in heaven, folks. That's astounding. That is an incredible thing to say to this man of the religious elite. He's all but outright stating His deity, His oneness with the Father, His oneness with the Father's plan and counsels. Jesus claims to be the very one sent, the one who descended from heaven to reveal salvation. So Jesus is saying the one who descend, He is the one from, who has descended from heaven to perform this task with divine authority. And He is therefore this Son of Man who has descended from heaven, sent by God. Jesus is claiming and implying that He is in fact this Son of Man who must be divine, whose origins are in heaven, and who has been sent to earth by God. Again, the one who has descended from heaven to reveal the deep truths of God's plan and purposes for human redemption and salvation. You see what He's saying? And sometimes when we study this passage, we just barrel right over it, pardon the expression. He's all but stating His deity, who He really is, where He's really come from, and what He's come to do. So Jesus is telling his, this man, yes, He is uniquely qualified to speak with authority on heavenly things because of His unique position with God Himself and because of His unique person as God. This heavenly Son of Man who descended from heaven. And you see what Jesus is doing? We've spoken of this before. Jesus is using His favorite title in referring to Himself. This is Jesus' favorite, 
self-designation and referring to himself. He will do so over 60 times in the Gospels. The Son of Man, by the way, this is the second time in this Gospel that Jesus uses that title, Son of Man. And where does this title come from? It comes from the Old Testament that Nicodemus has studied all of his life. has had at his fingertips all of his life. The Old Testament that Nicodemus is the titled expert of the nation of Israel. And he doesn't understand these things. This is the Son of Man that Jesus says He is. He is truly a Son of Man, truly a human being. But He is a Son of Man who originally came from heaven, from God the Father, the Ancient of Days. He is a Son of Man who is not only a human being, He is divine, whose origins are in heaven. He's telling us that He's the prophet Daniel's Son of Man. From the wonderful prophet Daniel, from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. Daniel says, I kept looking in these night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there was one like the Son of Man coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men and women of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom of one is one which will not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man that Jesus is referring to. The Son of Man that Jesus is telling Nicodemus He is. This is His credentials. This is His authority. This is what qualifies Him to teach of the new birth. This is who Jesus is claiming to be. The Son of Man who is divine, who descended from heaven to give humanity the deep things of the knowledge of God's plan in and for salvation. One of the most important points of this gospel, and is well before 3.16. This qualifies Jesus like no other to teach the heavenly things of John 3.16 and onwards. Last word of the day, I give to theologian Edward Clink from his commentary. He writes... Yes, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that there is no one who can reveal these things except me. And that his origins are divine from heaven itself. This statement of Jesus confirms what the prologue, yes, thank you Dr. Clink, the prologue. I've told you many times and I'll tell you again. Everything that you experience and encounter in the Gospel of John, you must view it through what you learned in the prologue. This statement of Jesus confirms what the prologue of the Gospel declared in chapter 1, verse 18. The only one. Only the one and only one. The unique Son. Only He can truly reveal the Father. For no one else has ever seen God the Father like God the Son. Jesus' language of ascending and descending is ultimately referring to the divine work of redemption that can only be accomplished and revealed by and in the Son of Man. Yes, Jesus of Nazareth, the Word made flesh. End quote. Exactly. This is what he has just told Nicodemus. Can you imagine what must have been going through that's that man's mind and emotions at this time? 
completely overwhelmed at this point? I would say so. Stricken, absolutely speechless at this point? Most certainly. And to this, well, it's not a conversation anymore, is it? To this discourse of He who is the truth, the Word made flesh, we of course return to Lord's Day. Next Lord's Day. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Word made flesh, and that by believing you may have life, born again from above life, in His name. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to proclaim Your truth, the deep, deep truth from this conversation. Please forgive my flawed and clumsy efforts to teach the most important message that any human being has ever heard or ever will hear. By the power of Your Spirit and by the power of Your spoken recorded and preserved word. Please open the minds and hearts of folks here and abroad and the world over to receive the born-again life that Jesus is teaching. Open their spiritual eyes and ears as you open the spiritual eyes and ears of this man Nicodemus so long ago. And you have been doing so in the minds and hearts and souls of men and women for 2,000 years from that time to this. Open their eyes, open their hearts, open their souls, O sovereign God by this proclaimed word, by the words of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, that they may submit to this truth, truly receive and accept this truth, and believe and have eternal life, born again transcendent life, in the name of He who is the Word made flesh, the divine Son of Man. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.